Welcome back, everyone, to Everyday Holiness, a faith indie podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. This is, again, your host, Dan Allen, Associate Director of Spirituality and Service. And we're here again on the podcast talking to members of the Notre Dame family about their lives, vocations, important decision moments, and the call to holiness that we all have. Uh, We are breaking some new ground today, though, because we are talking to our first pair of siblings. And so I'm really pleased to welcome Katie Broussard, who is a 2004 graduate of Notre Dame, and her younger brother, Paul Mitchell, who is a 2007 graduate. So Katie and Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dan. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. I am excited to, to speak with both of you and to share with the audience a bit of why we're talking to both of you at the same time, but we'll get into that here in a little bit. Let's start with your early childhood and some of those memories. One one here for both of you, what were some of the early memories of you have of each other and of your family as you grew up? Yeah, so we, we grew up in Fort Myers, Florida, southwest Florida, really, really close to the Gulf of Mexico. We didn't quite uh, appreciate the the natural beauty that we were afforded with our, uh, our, our homeland until we moved to uh, northern Indiana for, for the university. And people will, would, during spring break, would fly to where we were from. And, <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, it's a, it really is a beautiful place. And our, our family really did give us the gift of that natural beauty. We would go camping. We spent a lot of time outdoors. And, yeah, I recall it, I recall it very fondly. We had a lot of family around growing up particularly our our dad's brother's family they were also three we are we are three um siblings mm-hmm. and they were three siblings more or less age mates and and all of us actually went to, to notre dame or saint mary's and yeah just i recall very fondly growing up with them our life in the church with them and my dad's our dad's parents you know we would fill up a pew and and it was just a very you know, family-oriented time, and our family gave us a space for faith. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Our family uh, sacrificed sending us to to Catholic schools. I don't think we've. I went to a school that wasn't Catholic. Maybe for preschool. <laughs> but St. Francis Xavier in, in in Fort Myers and St. Andrew, and then our, for high school, Bishop Verreau run by the Oblates of St. Francis de Sales, and and our parents also modeled for us that it was normal to live an engaged faith. They would go to spiritual direction. There was always the, you know, the readings of the day pamphlet, you know, the sort of like a Magnificat or a give us this day. There was always one of those laying around or sure. a page ripped out and tacked up to the, to the mirror. You know, they, they really gave us that, that gift of, of modeling. Yeah. A mature and engaged faith and didn't, you know, didn't prescribe anything for us. They, they held that space for us, you know, and, and that's just a, a wisdom that I, I give much thanks for and could never repay. Yeah. We hear that from a lot of the guests that faith was just a natural part of life. I think it helps to have it ingrained within the immediate family, but then even having that extended family support, you know, that there's Others who are also walking this way and believe these things and making this a priority, I think, is really important. Katie, was that also true for you as you grew into your own faith? It really was. It's remarkable to me that Paul and I didn't really discuss our notes about our family upbringing before uh, speaking with you, but I have exactly the things that Paul said written down. (laughs) (laughs) The gift of our Catholic education and being educated by Dominican nuns and the Oblates of St. Francis de Sales was just a gift to have those amazing educators and just being exposed early on to the idea of these orders and their unique charisms and founders, I think um, really stuck with me. And as Paul said, with our parents, just having that idea ingrained in us early on that going to spiritual direction and going to a retreat for yourself is, you know, something that grown-ups do as part of their faith, I think was a really powerful example for us. Yeah, that's great to hear. I know that sometimes siblings don't always get along for a time and then then later on they do and then they come to appreciate each other and those bonds. Katie, what was the what was kind of your sibling relationship like growing up? What do you remember about those days? You know, I have to say that 
Paul and I had a very harmonious sibling relationship, (laughs) at least in my memory. (laughs) Um, And also shout out to our youngest brother, Scott, who is also really cool (laughs) and went to Notre Dame as well. And I remember sharing early on, and we'll get more into this later, but I remember sharing early on a love of books and reading Mm. and children's books in particular. And I can remember reading books with Paul that we just loved and saying, you know, we could do this. Like someday (laughs) we could make a children's book. And Paul, you know, from a young age, loved to write and I loved to draw. And so we always kind of had that as part of our relationship as well. I I recall it as similarly harmonious. I don't don't know what to, to make of it. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but it, and people are really surprised when we say that we work together and, and creating a book is really an intense deal. But one one thing that all uh, I recall and recall fondly is when I was a freshman in high school, Katie was a junior, mm-hmm. you know, I would start writing when, you know, in earnest for you know, history classes or English classes. And I'd, I'd write a draft and Katie would be like, hey, let me look at that. Mm hmm. And I like I knew that she was a good writer and that she could she could you know help the draft along, but it was hard. Like it was hard to give over something you've written that you know that's not that good. You know you know you're not that good of a writer. And so yeah, for these books, I'm the author and Katie's the illustrator. But it really should be noted that Katie was maybe my first writing tutor. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I would give her these drafts and she would mark it up and give it back. I'm like, oh my gosh. You're just you're right, you know. And, you know, I would work it up again, and and it, I became I became a far better writer because of Katie. So I think that's a uh, you know that's a fun story to tell, particularly as we delve into conversations about these books we're creating. Yeah, some foreshadowing there for what was to come. <laughs> yeah, and really the key part in the process of creating something is being able to hear and respond gracefully, generously to feedback, to give it in a way that you would like to hear it, receive it in a way that is productive for the project. And we really have a lot of time doing that. You know, I was 14 and, and Katie was 16 when we, when we started you know, this, sort of, this sort of feedback. So that's a kind of muscle memory that we rely on and I think is really uncommon. Mm-hmm. And if I could just jump in with a similar memory, sure. I remember you editing my writing, Paul, when I was applying <laughs> to the ACE program. I wrote my ACE essays, and you may remember I like rev- I really, really want to do the ACE program, so I revised my essays like eighty-seven times. <laughs> and Paul was the one who helped me, but also was like, "Dude, these are done. Like, you have got to stop revising these." Also, a part of shipping creative work is like knowing when you're done. <laughs> exactly. So, helping each other know when you need to go back and revise, and also, okay, you just gotta gotta send it out. It's done. <laughs> yeah, it's great to have that relationship established. Sometimes with faith in DR daily gospel reflections, it's a bit of a struggle because we're having a new writer every day and. We don't always know the writers and, you know, to try and do that over email gracefully and people, their writing being edited for the first time is a little bit, well, hey, wait a minute. Like, this was my, this was my perfect <laughs> work. What are you doing with it? But it's, uh, you know, an exercise in grace, as, as you said, Paul, that, you know, we're trying to give to each other as, as we get to an end product that, that is the best thing possible. Katie, for you, as you grew up and, and discovered your gifts and your sense of vocation. Can you tell us how that developed as you saw your your life starting to play out as a young person? Yeah, so I think I always had an interest in art and was also really drawn to the sciences. Mm-hmm. And when I was in high school, I sought out opportunities uh, to learn more about both of those things. And when I was at Notre Dame, I majored in biology and kind of decided to focus on the sciences and took some theology classes as part of my requirement for Notre Dame Mm -hmm. and just absolutely fell in love with what I was learning in my theology classes and so had a uh, second major in theology as well. Great, great. Thanks. Paul, how about for you as you discovered who God was calling you to be? 
Right. My years at Notre Dame were certainly very, very formative for that. I can, the first time I recall being really energized or, you know, feeling a sense of call towards a, a way of life, I remember it was actually, it was actually in conversation with Katie. Uh, we decided, it was Katie's last semester. I was a, I was a sophomore and we decided we wanted to take a class together mm-hmm. and I needed a second theology requirement. I was excited to take another theology class and we, you know, we looked at our schedules and one of the only uh, classes that, that lined up was Professor Margie Files class, uh, War, Law and Ethics. Mm, wow. And all right, let's, you know, let's take it. And more than, perhaps more than anything else in that point in my life, this was a, a really providential, a providential moment meeting Margie and engaging in, you know, the questions that she was, she was posing in class. I remember she started the class with this quote from, from Pedro Rupe about, about falling in love, you know, what you choose to spend your time doing, what you give your, you know, your mornings to your evenings to your heart to that will decide everything, Mm -hmm. you know, and that is, that's just the heart of a vocation and fall in love, stay in love. It will decide everything. And what I, what that semester I found myself falling in love with was, you know, our Catholic tradition, our Catholic intellectual tradition. I, I changed uh, my major to the program of liberal studies and I, I just loved every every one of the the three years of that uh, formation, understanding our our tradition in the context of you know the history, you know global global intellectual history, and also this life of of active love and of action and particularly service to the poor that that Margie and then Holy Cross priest Michael Baxter were were engaged in, they were starting, that was the semester they were starting the Catholic Worker House in mm. South Bend that's still there. And, you know, we would go, Katie and I and other friends would go and have meals there and really see this deep witness of, of active love, service to the poor, tradition of nonviolence. And I just felt so grateful <laughs> to be there, to be on this journey, and that this is something I wanted to to learn about for the rest of my life. And it has been it has been a magnificent journey and and one of of ultimate value. Thanks for sharing that, Katie. What were some of your most important memories of your time at Notre Dame, and really things that helped shape you into the person that you become? I think one thing that was really formative for me at Notre Dame was just experiencing so many different ways that people could express their faith and so many different types of religious practice. Mm -hmm. I feel like I was invited to experience so many different things from going to mass in the Basilica to going to mass in my dorm, wearing my slippers and going on retreats and being in a choir. And like Paul said, making dinner at the Catholic Worker House. It really just gave me a chance to see how beautiful it was that God spoke to us in so many different ways and how meaningful it is to gather with other people to pray together and to share our faith together. Yeah, there is a richness of experience here that a lot of us as as alums share and and are grateful for. And sometimes when you get out uh, into the world, you find yourself longing for some of that, that community. For sure. Uh, what about the interaction, Katie? I'll ask you first, and then Paul. The interaction with the Congregation of Holy Cross. Did you know anything about Holy Cross before you came to Notre Dame? What were some of your important interactions with that that community while you were here? I did not know about Holy Cross uh, before coming to Notre Dame, but I had the opportunity to learn a bit while I was at Notre Dame and had a really formative relationship in the ACE program with uh, Father Lou Delfra was our chaplain Mm -hmm. and uh, just really kind of shepherded our ace flock in that uh, journey of becoming teachers and navigating those first couple years of being a teacher and how challenging those are. And I just really, I have a strong memory of coming back from that first year of teaching. I was in Los Angeles and coming back to campus for our summer classes and Father Lou would say mass every night in the Fisher Chapel. Mm-hmm. And just uh, 
going to those masses and hearing him preach about many of the themes of Holy Cross spirituality, I've come to know, was just such an experience of being spiritually fed and preparing myself for another school year. And uh, that was that was probably one of the times when I had started to kind of understand Holy Cross, the Holy Cross charism sure. the most. Sure. Paul, how about for you? Yeah, my my introduction to the Holy Cross actually came through through Margie File when I it, through conversations with her at the Catholic Worker House and then coming coming back from a summer in El Salvador through the International Summer Service Learning Program at the Center for Social Concerns. And Margie, you know, in the context of these conversations, Margie would say, you know, Paul, you you really could could use a spiritual director and go ahead, <laughs> go ahead and look up Father Paul Coleman. He's mm-hmm. uh, he lives in your dorm. He lives in Keenan. And yeah, go go ask if uh, you know if he if he has you know time to give as a spiritual director, and I've been so grateful for that introduction. Paul has been from that time until now a very faithful friend, uh, a companion in the faith, and one that I'm just I'm so grateful for. He was there, and we started talking in I think 2005 when I was a just a desperately inarticulate 20 year old you know about my about my inner life. Through various seasons of our life, I, you know, after Notre Dame, I was for two years with the Holy Cross in East Africa, and that's where he he does his work as a professor. His research is in the East African Church, so he would come through mm-hmm. town, and we would be able to talk then. And you know, as the you know over the past years, when I have transitioned to be a stay-at-home dad, he when we were in Chicago, he would he would come through town and. Has be a very, very constant companion, and I just feel so grateful for you know for that accompaniment. He was able to kind of expand my vision whenever I would bear down on a, a problem and really just think that I was uh, there's just no way forward. One one brilliant story about this was when I was just starting spiritual direction. Again, like I said, I was just deeply inarticulate, and one kind of conversation kind of ground to a halt. And he's like, hey, let's let's go for a walk. And we walked, you know, past the lakes and and on the road to St. Mary's. There's the there's the graveyard there of the the men of Holy Cross. Right. And he entered the he entered the little gate and he walked out into the grass a little bit. And with this with this little smile, he said, you know, I think I'll probably pointing to the grass, you know, gesturing gently. He goes, I think I'm. I think I'll probably be about here, <laughs> you know, and like just holding gently one's death, yeah, which is for many the ultimate loss mm. and desperately avoided, you know, holding that gently. I think in these moments, I was able to kind of retrospectively see the Holy Cross charism. The, the cross is, in fact, our hope, you know, the paradox of the cross. And, and to have this grow in meaning for me through the years has been just a brilliant gift and one that just continues to enrich my life. Yeah, that's beautifully said. Uh, very articulate, Paul. So, you know, I'm... <laughs> <laughs> so you both had some pretty important experiences after Notre Dame that were kind of extensions of Notre Dame. So, Katie, I'll, I'll start with you again first. The, the experience with ACE, was that pretty early in the days of ACE? And could you say a bit more about those years teaching and, and learning at the same time about how to be a teacher? Sure. So it was fairly early. I was in the ACE 11 class. Okay. And I think nowadays I would be called an ACE teaching fellow. Mm-hmm. And my placement was in Los Angeles. I was a high school science teacher and at Cantwell Sacred Heart of Mary High School. And I taught chemistry, biology, and AP biology while I was there. And I had a fantastic experience. It was very challenging, as any first-year teaching experience tends to be. (laughs) But it was a school that was just extremely supportive of ACE teachers and had had some fantastic ACE teachers. And so they, when I arrived, they just expected me to be awesome because all of the other ACE teachers that had been there had been awesome. And just that expectation was so powerful to me that I just 
wanted to be great every day and do my best. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the blessings of being in ACE in LA is that there are so many ACE schools in LA that at the time there were three different ACE communities. Okay in different parts of LA. And so we sort of had not only our own community, but the other ACE communities to get together and support one another. And we, you know, had ACE retreats and ACE summers of learning more about the art of teaching. And my husband, Rustin, was also ACE 11. And we met in the ACE program. Great, great. We'll get to that for sure. The call to marriage... But I want to return to Paul. This time in East Africa, that's a, that's a pretty intense commitment. At the time, were you thinking about being part of Holy Cross formally, or what kind of led to that decision to go to East Africa for those two years? Right. I think that desire was you know, a part of the desire that I spoke of, of before about wanting to understand more deeply our tradition, understand the global church mm-hmm. and particularly service to the poor and mission being a two-way street, right? The you know, East Africa, you know, we talk about, you know, North America or the, the West being a, a secular place. East Africa, not secular. <laughs> <laughs> and just to be able to be evangelized, you know, by a, by a, a culture that's very, very different than mine. I spent a lot of time in Latin America in undergrad, but um, I remember in my, one of my interviews with one of the Holy Cross priests, Father Pat Gaffney, who's now in Bangladesh, hmm. he said, you know, you've been to Latin America. That's, you know, that's another country. That's nice. East Africa is another world. Hmm. And it, and it really is. And, and one that has just really it explodes a lot of you know categories religiously that we we take for granted and in very helpful ways you know specifically what i said about oh we live in a secular world not everybody mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. that where there's a there's an immediacy to to faith and just a gosh a profoundness and of community prayer i remember it was holy week 2009 I lived in Uganda, but I traveled. I traveled in 2009 to the Holy Cross Parish in Dandora, which is one of the slums in Nairobi. Hmm. And they had to have so many masses for Easter, and they were packed. Hmm. And just the visceral experience of prayer, and like the the Swahili word that was kept that kept being repeated was Ame Fufuka. He is risen. He is risen. Mm-hmm. And just people lived this in a, you know, one of the most desperate slums of Nairobi, people were on fire because Jesus had risen. You know, you, you leave the parish where perhaps, you know, where I I prayed last Easter and, oh, that was a good homily. Mm, The Psalm was really, uh, (laughs) you know, excellent. But no, people are, people are leaving this place. He is risen, you know, for days they're on fire and, and certainly this sort of engagement can happen, you know, in the United States and Europe, et cetera. I don't mean to make, I don't mean to put too fine of a point on it, but yeah. So that, that was one of the, uh, the points that I really appreciated about my time in East Africa. Another, another point we, our volunteer community was seven young, you know, undergrads right out of Notre Dame and the support of this community is something that I, I hadn't expected. One story was from about a a month after we had moved there. I was having a tough time. There were a lot of transitions personally Mm -hmm. and just transitioning to, you know, the life there was, was very hard and it took me a little while to share it with my community. But one of my community members, Joe Waisaki, he he was, he was an old collegian for, for a while Mm -hmm. and, and knew the Holy Cross charism better than, better than the rest of us. You know, he listened quietly and he disappeared for a moment and came back with his copy of the Constitutions of the Holy Cross, which he still he still kept with him. And the final Constitution, Constitution 8, describes with just brilliant articulateness the, the paradox of the cross. The cross is our hope, 
And that was such a profound gift that Joe gave to me there. He didn't interpret it. He didn't overinterpret it. He didn't describe to me what my, you know, what I was going through. He just offered something that had been life-giving for him and offered it to me without, you know, kind of explanation. And it continues to be, to be life-giving. And it was you know, one of the parts that I really wanted to get right about this book, <laughs> you know, was weaving the, the depth of part of following Jesus is accepting pain. Hmm. And, and when we do this, the resurrection for us can be a daily event. And it was in those two years that I came to a deepening understanding of the Holy Cross charism and, and also thought, why didn't anyone tell me this at Notre Dame? You know, why did I have to, uh, why did I have to go you know, to the other side of the world to see this? So anyhow, that, those, are, those are two stories. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. I hope we're making inroads in that and making sure that people don't leave Notre Dame without understanding this because it is so applicable, whether you're part of Holy Cross or not. We all have the crosses that we bear in life and to look to Christ and his cross and the promise of the resurrection is is a source of hope for all of us. Uh, so even those of us I'd call friends of Holy Cross, I think, can really appreciate that message and that charism. Now, Katie, you mentioned that you met your husband in ACE. How did that develop? And can you give us some sense of your call to marriage and experience of that, please? Sure. So my husband, my now husband, Preston, was also in ACE 11. And he was in Montgomery, Alabama during the school years for his placement. And he had all before ACE, he had already done a year of Jesuit volunteer corps. So this was like his second time around of service and community living. So he already kind of knew some of the, some of the ins and outs of, you know, community life, which was helpful. And we got to know each other because we were both high school teachers and he was teaching math. So we were in some of the same classes together for science and math. Mm -hmm. And we started dating around the time of our first December retreat in ACE and had a long distance relationship from Los Angeles to Montgomery, had a chance to visit each other's ACE sites a few times, which was pretty cool. And when our ACE time ended, we discerned that we we're ready to move to the same city and, you know, be in a not long distance relationship. <laughs> same time zone, everything. Yeah, exactly. So we looked for a city that had a lot of Catholic high schools. And so we landed in Chicago and I, I got a job at, at Cristo Rey in Chicago, um, which was a dream job for me. And Rustin taught at Loyola Academy so we were both, you know, teaching at Jesuit high schools, and we uh, dated few, for a few years in Chicago, and then discerned a call to marriage, and we were married in 2009. Great. Paul, you, you are also married, and you mentioned being a stay-at-home dad. How did that call to marriage develop for you? Yeah, I am, I'm so grateful for, for my marriage to a brilliant woman, Sarah who is a great companion in asking these questions that I've, that I've touched on before of, mm -hmm. you know, how do we live lives of active love and particularly internationally. I remember that one of the first times I, you know, we sat down and had you know, those long conversations that after which you go, Oh man, something, something is really here. This is a, this is a special relationship. I uh, was after, you know, she, she got back from the international summer service learning project through the, the Center for Social Concerns. She was in Cambodia. Okay. Um, and I was off my second summer in El Salvador and sharing these really deep questions of, based on what we saw, how do we live? And after graduation, we started dating right at the end of Notre Dame and after we had already committed to different international you know, service terms. So <laughs> I, I lived in East Africa. She lived in, in Bangladesh, in Dhaka. Wow. Yeah, and so that was some really that was international long distance. Yeah, right? Katie, that that kind of trumps your uh, <laughs> LA to Mobile. Yeah, that was nothing. <laughs> yeah, 
But she, you know, she visited Uganda and so got to see my reality. I was able to visit DACA and see the work that she was doing. And at the end of my service term, I, I, flew, uh, I flew east instead of west. I, I lived in DACA uh, for, for two months to be closer to her. Mm-hmm. And I, I was, again, providentially able to, to meet the Holy Cross there. But since Sarah and I have, we've lived and worked in Cairo with a, a refugee organization there run by refugees and also serving refugees from you know, East Africa, Syria, Iraq, the Horn of Africa. And she is currently in the State Department. And we're, we live in Mexico now. We live on the border. Hmm. And I'm in a, a supportive role for our family and for her. But to see how you know, she is able to engage and, and transform a culture. And because of, of formation at Notre Dame is a, is a truly special thing and something that um, I look forward to you know, in our life together. Yeah, I think there's something to be said for living abroad and and gaining that that broader perspective of how people live and Paul as you mentioned how they practice their their faith and what I'm always grateful for as a Catholic is you get this the true sense of the universal church and you know going into in, mass in a language that I don't understand but I do understand it because I know what's what's happening there. Exactly right. Yeah. What has been that experience of seeing the faith in, from an international perspective. Yeah, thank you. I've touched on the church in, in East Africa a little bit. I'll, I'll speak a little bit about Bangladesh and, and Cairo. In Bangladesh, once I was in Dhaka, you know, Sarah was employed. I, was, I, was, I volunteered a little bit, but was, was pretty unemployed. So I reached out to Father Tom McDermott, hmm. who was a Holy Cross priest. He spent you know, decades in East Africa, and now he was, he was serving in Dhaka. And he was a brilliant guide to the to the church there one day you know he he took us up to the the parishes up in the north and the indigenous matrilineal ethnic groups up there it's different you know from the the ethnic bengalis and yeah he was just describing the the church as a He's like, it's Micronesia in a sea of Islam, but it works. You know, it, it's, and, and the Holy Cross is, is a huge part of it. They, a good number of the bishops are Holy Cross there. Mm-hmm. Some of the best schools in Dhaka are Holy Cross. And so you see this, this witness in this leaven in a, in a hugely majority Muslim country. Um, and it's, it's really, it's a really special thing in, Cairo, I prayed at the church of that was from the Kamboni missionaries, um, and the mass was in Arabic, and it was not very full, mm-hmm. but you could see the that the the Kamboni missionaries still are there, you know, witnessing to the love of God, and you got to see the in this was like a post between Europe and the Kamboni who were who were in Central and East Africa, I believe. I think they were they were Daniel Kamboni was an Italian. Hmm. Um, so I was able to glimpse the, you know, not only the the global, you know, aspect of the church, but also the the history behind, you know, the missionary um, activity in Africa. Yeah. Well thanks for sharing that perspective for those of us who haven't had the chance to live and worship abroad in that way. Now, we, we've talked about the book here and there, but let's get into it formally. Katie, can you tell us about what the book is and the decision to put it together, how that all came about? Sure. So um, the book is called Soren Starts a School, and it's about the foundation of Notre Dame and particularly uh, the role of Edward Father Edward Soren in building the University of Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. And just a warning that somewhere along the way in creating this book, Paul and I decided that we are on a first name basis with Edward Soren and we started calling him Ed. <laughs> <laughs> Work with the rhyme scheme far better to call him Ed. So. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so just in case we're, uh, we toss out an Ed here and there, that is how we now think of Father Soren. Good, good. <laughs> but we were just really captivated by this story of uh, Father Soren 
coming to the United States and uh, envisioning the university and uh, just making it happen out of nothing and against all of the odds and just his vision and determination and deep faith. The story just sort of came alive in our imaginations and we uh, learned more about it and had decided that this, we wanted to sort of flesh it out into a book because, you know, we, we have lots of ideas, but not all of them actually make it into books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we, we really felt called to, you know, commit to creating a book about this story. And then quarantine happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my, my children weren't in school anymore. Uh, we're doing e-learning. And my husband was working from home and Paul and I kind of had a meeting, you know, on the phone where we said, okay, let's regroup here. Are we still doing this? Are we still, <laughs> are we still making this book? And we decided that, yes, you know, we, we were still doing it. And I think that was something really significant about the book is that we made it, you know, kind of during that time of quarantine and uncertainty And uh, for me, it was really anchoring to have uh, this project and uh, almost a a spiritual discipline uh, to return to day after day during that time to to enter into this story and to Holy Cross spirituality. And it was very, very grounding. Yes, I think we could say that Ed would be proud that you persevered through difficulty. (laughs) Yes, yes, we we felt very connected to him in uh, <laughs> in overcoming adversities to to make something <laughs> for sure. Katie remarked at one point that the the main building of this book burned down at least four times during the uh, <laughs> during the making of the book. <laughs> That's good. It's here, and it's you know we're we're so we're so glad to be able to uh, to give it as a gift, you know, back to the congregation, but also also the Notre Dame family. You know, as as we've we've talked about the congregation of Holy Cross has really been a, a profound gift to us, particularly in the you know the quality of the accompaniment that they offer and yeah and their charism and re, we really wanted to you know, to give this to give this as a gift to them and in a very important way all of the all of the money will be going to the newest holy cross university in dhaka mm-hmm. the notre dame university bangladesh interestingly father sore and ed he resisted uh, assignment to DACA. Mm-hmm. And so we, you know, we like to think that, you know, through this book and through all of our, you know, collaboration and sharing this book, we're allowing him to, to serve there and in doing so, you know, be able to, to share the charism of the Holy Cross through the words and the, and the, the art of the book. Mm-hmm. So, Paul, you were the author of this. Can you give us a sense of how you got to the idea of a children's book and you mentioned making it rhyme. What were some of the challenges there, but also some of the, the joyful discoveries of picking what parts of the story to share and, and how? Certainly. This is actually our second book. Um, our first book was called Audacious Ignatius. We were both Jesuit educators in Chicago. And, uh-huh. you know, the schools we were at always always wanted to be able to onboard new faculty to the story of the Society of Jesus and Ignatius but struggled to do so, you know, oh, man, do we have to give professional development days to this? Da, 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 da. And I, one year I was like, you know what? I bet I could, I bet I could do this in like 500 words. <laughs> I bet I could, I bet I could do it. And then I wrote a, I wrote a first draft for this book while I was still teaching before our first son was born. And when he was, after he was born and I was home with him, I worked on the words more. And one day I went over to, to Katie's house in Chicago and said, hey, you know, do you want to do the art for this book? And we were off to the races from there. That was our that was our first book, and it was such a gift to the Ignatian family that we wanted to to give a similar book to the Notre Dame family, you know, and back to the congregation of Holy Cross. The second book was more of a challenge in the sense that, the, well, the you know the Ignatius book we wanted to weave in aspects of Ignatian spirituality, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the imaginative prayer, the spiritual exercises, God in all things. And honestly, doing this for the Holy Cross spirituality is a little bit of a harder draw because, you know, the core of their charism is, you know, the paradox of the cross. Mm-hmm. 
Our Lady of Sorrows, you know, engaging with the loss in our life. These are tougher themes <laughs> for a rhyming children's book. Right. But what Katie, you know, when Katie and I talk, what we really long for and strive after are books that are shot through with a depth and delight, you know, that shows the depth of our tradition, but also the delight in being children of God. And, and we really hope that both of these books do it and they're certainly being received as such. So the, the depth of the, the themes of the Holy Cross Charism was certainly a, a challenge. Not a whole lot of things rhyme with Moreau and Soren. <laughs> uh, so that was also a challenge. A lot of more things rhyme with Ignatius. But yeah, we had, we had brilliant interlocutors, two young guns of the, the Congregation of Holy Cross, Father Kevin Grove and Drew Garich, and also Lou Delfra, who introduced us to them, were early readers mm -hmm. um, and were very generous with their time. Marianne and Ben Wilson, who are part of the interworkings of you know, Notre Dame and the community at large now are, they were great editors, just brilliant interlocutors for the, the text and made it far better than it would have been um, otherwise. So, you know, it was Katie and I really, really plugging away on this, but we had a, a remarkable team that was really fueled by the, you know, the esprit de corps of the Notre Dame family. That's so nice to hear that collaboration was there, certainly part of the Holy Cross cares of me, the family of Holy Cross, and how we all bring our gifts to the table and live a holy life through that. Katie, for you as an author and an illustrator, what is your process? What was the experience of making the artwork for this book? I would say that it was really a delightful combination of research and imagination. Mm -hmm. So I really enjoyed just immersing myself in the Marvin O'Connell book about Edward Soren and just learning about all of the details of his journey and the founding of the university and all of the resources that are on the Notre Dame website. I have found through working on Audacious Ignatius and other books that I, I really enjoy the research component mm -hmm. of illustration and making sure that I can incorporate as much historical detail as possible, but also the imaginative aspect of just imagining, you know, what would their lives have been like? And, you know, what was that first breakfast like at Notre Dame when they arrived at the at the site and were trying to imagine, you know, what what's it going to look like to have a university here? <laughs> how, how did that conversation go <laughs> during that very, very cold winter? So, uh, yeah, just, just enjoying uh, both the the research and the the imaginative aspects of it from a from a technical perspective um, my process is just to, taking the words that Paul has written and uh, we sort of work together to divide them up page by page I sketch out what uh, will go on different pages and then uh, make watercolor paintings which then are scanned and um, digitally edited to become part of the book. It's fascinating. I am not an artist at all. And so just, uh, you know, looking through the books, it's beautiful how it, how it comes to life. And it does both have the warmth of kind of a children's tale, but also thinking about the reality of it and thinking about the conditions and what people went through to leave us this great deposit of faith and, and the gift of the university is, is pretty remarkable. Katie, what has been the response to the book so far, and what are some of your hopes for it as it continues to be part of people's awareness? We've gotten uh, so many kind responses from people. It's really remarkable just how many positive reviews we've gotten from children who have enjoyed the book, as well as adults mm -hmm. who have enjoyed the book. I would say it's about 50-50 at this point, which is uh, really a joy for us to know that both kids and adults, you know, can, can enter into this um, together and share this together. We really wanted, as Paul said, we really wanted to just share the gift of Holy Cross spirituality that we have received with others through this book. And we just, we really wanted the book to feel the way that our experience of Holy Cross spirituality feels. And 
through, you know, the details of Our Lady of Sorrows and just the the work of the early members of the community there through Father Soren's devotion to the Holy Family, just to share that gift with others through this book. Mm-hmm. Paul, what has been your experience so far now that the book is out and in people's hands? I wanted to, to add, this might be a little bit more difficult for, for Katie to say, but overwhelmingly people are just taken over by the beauty of the book. Mm-hmm. And I could say this because I have very little to do with it, <laughs> but just the, just the beauty of the book feels like being on campus, you know, and they can, you know, drawn into the, the story of this founding. People just can't get enough of the art. It's really a shame that, that uh, you know, the listeners can't see it, but, you know, go online and go online and look, go to the bookstore and find the book. That is, that's overwhelmingly one of the bits of feedback that we've been getting. Also, last week I was on a call with the, the members of Holy Cross who are, you know, working every day to build the Notre Dame University Bangladesh mm-hmm. and just to see their work and be just just delight in their 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 work and to be a part of it. That is that's one of the the main motivations for me that this this book on the final page, you know, describes you know kind of the reason of why we're supporting them and that we hope for the flourishing of their their work there. And that's one of the bits of delight that I carry around around sharing this book. So, I do want to get into holiness here as, as we round out the podcast. But one thing I wanted to touch on was the choice to include, you know, some of the flaws, I guess you might say, the, the, the human realities of Father Soren and, and, you know, some of the difficulties that that caused. That sometimes, uh, if you read a saint biography or something, and, you know, Father Soren's not, not a canonized saint or anything, but, you know, sometimes you read the lives of founders and it's all like, wow, which is what a great person. I could never measure up. But you chose to include some of the harder aspects and the harder lessons that Father Soren had to learn. And I think that's that's really important because it honestly gives some hope for the rest of us when we feel like, oh, I'm not, exactly. I'm not doing this perfectly. Yeah, it's a great question. And a lot of people have asked it that, well, why a, why a book about Edward Soren? He was really this ambivalent figure and he had these serious flaws. And my answer is exactly, <laughs> you know, despite all of those, he, the, and the point that we want to lift up in the book is his faith in God's love was really astounding and unrelenting and his desire to build something that gave honor to God and to that nourished the people of God was just so unrelenting. It was just merciless. And, and it's, he built this place and it wasn't, if it wasn't for him pushing in that way, we wouldn't be here talking. You know, our formation would be so different. Mm-hmm. And it, yes, he, he was certainly flawed. And then as we were reading, Katie and I were reading the, the behemoth biography of, of Edward Soren, you know, it became more and more clear that this is something we had to address. And I think one of the things we hope to leave readers with is it's not just so much, if you, especially if you're on social media these days, there's so much critique there's so much, you know, of something that someone else is doing, and particularly in the church, there's commentary and there's critique. And I'm not sure a lot of that moves us forward. What I'm sure we need more of is contribution. People building generous things. And that is really what Edward Soren was dedicated to. And he did it. <laughs> he did it. And so that is at the end of the book, in a turn towards the reader, this is what we want to you know, shepherd the reader's attention towards is he put his faith in action. And look, this flawed man, certainly he had a team, but you know, his, his witness and his energy was really remarkable. And we frankly owe a great deal to this flawed man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, that's, uh, that's a little bit about why. Yeah. It's amazing with God's grace, what can happen even through our flawed humanity. So Katie, I'll, I'll turn to you as, as we finish up here with the topic of holiness. Who have been some of the holy people in your life who have been real mentors to you in faith? In thinking about 
the creation of this book, I have to, I, I think first of Mary as a model of holiness for me, mm-hmm. particularly since becoming a parent. Mm-hmm. Whenever I struggle with something in parenthood, I always think, okay, Mary totally gets this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I have always had a devotion to Our Lady of Guadalupe mm-hmm. since studying in Mexico and working at Cristo Rey, which just does a beautiful celebration of Our Lady of Guadalupe. But working on this book really introduced me to Our Lady of Sorrows, which was honestly never a depiction of Mary that I had been particularly drawn to. Mm. But it just really unfolded for me, particularly thanks to Father Lou Delfra, who was sort of the spiritual director of this book, Mm -hmm. (laughs) sharing some of his writings and uh, Father Moreau's writings about Our Lady of Sorrows. I I feel like she was my companion Mm. uh, when I had worked on this book and just the sense that she understood our deep sorrow and our deep joy um, during this difficult time. I I know I'm not alone in having complicated feelings about about these times and uh, being so deeply sorrowful for the suffering in the world Mm. and for injustices that we witness and experiencing the challenges of schools being closed but also in facing these challenges head on and looking them in the eye and being mindful of the joy of our family being together and the gift of being able to work on this book with my brother. It was just a a model of holiness that really nourished me in the creation of this book. Thank you for that. Paul, anything to add about models of holiness for you? Two two, uh, religious of the Holy Cross stand out for me. One, I I already mentioned um, Tom McDermott, the Holy Cross uh, priest I've met in Bangladesh. But I'll tell a brief story of of why he's a model for me. I made a silent retreat at the Formation House in Dhaka right before we were to leave. But Tom made sure that I never, on any given day, got too much silence. He was like, hey, you know, come over here. There's someone I want you to meet. Hey, come over here. Let's go to the Missionaries of Charity House. I want you to see it. Hey, look, come on, the, the Bengalbao guys, the volunteers are in town. I want you to talk to them on, and the, the, the topic he gave me was the truth will make you strange, right? The, the riff by <laughs> Flannery O'Connor on, on the John 8, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, or the, you know, the truth will make, uh, make you strange. <laughs> and we just shouldn't be fearful of looking a little bit strange to the world if, if we are to follow the gospel. And I think, Tom, that, that's a grace to, to be able to do that. And that grace flows deeply in, in Tom McDermott. He's deeply himself. And, and he, his active love, which this was the point of getting me out of the silence, right? If it's not, if the silence in this prayer isn't leading to active love, you maybe, you know, maybe worry about it a little bit because this is, you know, you know, a major theme in our discipleship needs to be this, this active love and the, you know, the service of each other. Um, the second story is, you know, and a model of holy, holiness for me is a sister of the Holy Cross, Judith Ann Beatty, hmm. who she directed um, some silent retreats for me during very formative years in my mid to late 20s. And you know, one day in particular during a silent retreat, during a crossroads in my life, I just felt this really overwhelming sadness. And it was in the presence of her in that retreat that I was just able to cry. And it was, it's so hard for me to describe the quality of presence that she offered in that moment Mm -hmm. that was, I was able to you know, not be humiliated, but but it was a really it was a kenosis of sorts that really then later led to clarity. And I just have to think that the quality of the presence that she offers is a life lived with Our Lady of Sorrows. Like there's a there's a line in the the Constitutions of the Holy Cross. That's, you know, if like Jesus, we accept suffering in our discipleship, we will move without awkwardness among others who suffer. Mm-hmm. And she is forever the, the, the picture of that for me. And yeah, it's, it's just, a, it was a grace that I, I give thanks for a great deal. And, and 
just pray that I can I can be a similar you know way for for others. So yeah, Sister Judith Ann Beatty. Great, thanks for sharing her story as well, Paul. Have you, how have you found some momentum towards holiness in your own life? What practices have been particularly effective for you as a husband, a father, a writer, all these things that make make you up who you are? I have to say just the process and just daily routine of loving my sons is just a really extraordinary formation in religious practice. I think, I mean, like if you were a God of love, say, you know, forgive me the, the crass metaphor here, but like if you were a God of love, could, could you really create a practice, you know, that was better at disabusing someone that they're the center of the world, you know, or, or <laughs> the, you know, our basic selfishness, you know, like you couldn't create a better, a better way than children. Mm-hmm. And just to watch them grow together as a family, I joke that I'm, I'm staying, you know, I'm a stay at home dad and it's the next part of my religious formation <laughs> or my theological <laughs> formation. Certainly I have to find time for silence. And my, my almost five-year-old is now understanding this in the morning. He'll wake me up and I'll say, all right, Augie, I need to, um, I need to meditate and I need to pray. And he's like, okay, you know, so he'll go pray a little bit and then we'll have breakfast together. Yeah. And I, I really do need that silence and, and some time with scripture so I can kind of tune and, and offer a quality of presence that I, that I hope, to, uh, hope to offer to them. Thanks very much. And Katie, as a last question for you, in, in pursuing holiness in your own life, what, what have been some of the things that have really worked for you? Recently, I would say that the creative process has become a huge part of how God is working in my life and how I pray. I think there's, speaking for myself, there's a huge part of the creative process where I feel that I am opening myself up to God Mm. and that my desire to create something and to paint is connected to my desire for God. And I have been fortunate to be able to work on creative projects that are related to topics that are very spiritually engaging for me, like (laughs) Father Soren Mm -hmm. and St. Ignatius. And I just think there are so many parallels to showing up to create and showing up to pray. I think a lot of times I experience resistance to both of them Mm -hmm. with just the uncertainty of like, well, you know, is this going to be a waste of time? Like maybe nothing's going to happen. Like should probably just unload the dishwasher. (laughs) But, you know, just having this draw and this desire to, to create and to make myself sit down and do it and just being amazed uh, with what God has to show me and uh, just how much there is to unfold. I think that that, op- that often happens to me in my, my prayer life too. You know, sometimes it's hard, hard to sit down and, and make the time, but it's just so much life there. And in both cases, I just, I just have to attend to it. And um, when I'm working on a, a book, the book grows and uh, God's life in us grows just by us loving it and caring about it and paying attention to it. Um, and it becomes what God wants it to be. Yeah. Well, amen to that. I, I can certainly say, I mean, it was it was great to hear this sibling relationship that, you know, was so fruitful even uh, from the beginning that you could really be a gift of God to each other. And it's just clear to me that that gift has continued to grow to the point of these books, and especially for the Notre Dame and Faith in D family, this Soren Starts a School book, such a gift to share with the next generation, you know, the gift of the university and the Congregation of Holy Cross. So thank you. Thank you for sharing those gifts with us and with the world. And thank you for your time and coming on the podcast. It's really been a pleasure to speak to both of you and to just get some insight into how this all came about. So I've really enjoyed the conversation. Us too. Thanks, Dan. This was a delight. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to talk with you. 
depth and delight, right, Paul? That's what we're that's what we're about. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> well, that concludes this episode of Everyday Holiness, a Faith in Deep podcast. If you'd like to be made aware of future episodes of the podcast, you're certainly welcome to subscribe to any service of your choosing, as well as to our daily gospel reflection email at faith.nd.edu slash signup. There you'll receive notifications of future episodes of the podcast, as well as that daily reflection that I mentioned earlier. So thanks for being with us, and until next time, you'll be in our prayers. Mm-hmm.